0: back to sports and society for april 20th i uh, hope that you're laying back and maybe you've got one going or maybe you're waiting a little bit to get one going today but uh welcome to 420 sports and society how you doing carl <laughs>
1: uh well, i'm already one deep so let's, let's roll with this
0: <laughs> um, well what uh, uh what's got you captivated man
1: that's not true by the way I just <laughs> need to point that out. Um, <laughs> uh, let me I saw a headline this week. I didn't read it, but uh has Canada made pop boring? Which I, I like didn't read the article because I was like there's no way the article is as good as that headline. So That's I'm just gonna stick fantastic with the headline. headline yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, would you uh what are you paying attention to this week?
0: Um, well I think I'll leave Tiger stuff for you if you want to talk about that because I don't I don't really know what to say about it. But I will say that um the NBA playoffs have got me really jazzed to get back into basketball. It really came I have to say it was perfect timing in terms of like I had that week to bask in the UVA glory and now I'm ready to see basketball played at that very highest level as hard as possible. And it really is. You know, I know it's become a big thing, and people it's not as true as people want to make it out to, but the level of play in the playoffs in the NBA is just so much better. Um, and it is just, as soon as I tuned in, I was immediately captivated again and remembered why I love these things.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm always interested in the first three quarters of playoff basketball and how astoundingly different those first three quarters look. Mm-hmm. If I were to like pinpoint what's different... In that, when you're watching a regular season game, that first quarter, I it's like sometimes <laughs> difficult to tell that a competition is happening. Uh, but I always I feel for those guys, man. The the idea of like the ball being thrown up for a tip on a regular season game, and you're in sixth place, and the team you're playing is in last place, and you're away from home. Of just like, oh my gosh, we're doing this again. And and how much energy and output uh, an NBA game would have to take on them.
0: Yeah, and it's, you know, I think this brings to mind the stat that I shared with you this week, which is um, the most staggering statistic I may have ever seen, um, which is that of the NBA teams with the fewest days with the losing record since the 97 98 season. we have, in second place, the Houston Rockets with 1,007 days. And in first place, the San Antonio Spurs with 65 days. It's just amazing that they've been able to maintain that level of consistency for that long. It's, it's just incredible.
1: Of all the Greg Popovich statistics that you and I could geek out on and feel very affirmed by, that might be one of the best uh, that's that's exceptional and also did you see the article on his team dinners
0: yes i Well, in the quote like my legacy is food and drink basketball is just a job or something like that which is just <laughs> like amazing <laughs> yeah
1: I, I i think it's the most leeway i've ever given to a rich white man while reading that article Because essentially it's just this story of a rich white guy spending thousands and thousands of dollars on wine and food, Uh, yet it's somehow, because it's Greg Popovich, I I can find space in me for a pass.
0: Well, and it's, uh, yeah, I I mean, on some level, but I also am like, what what else could you spend that money on? I'm like, this is probably perhaps the best way he could, I mean, he's reinvesting his salary back into his job in some ways, but
1: anyway. Yeah, and... It did have the the anecdote that he um, is known for four figure tips. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> can't imagine uh, Greg, that, that. Any yeah. anyone that's worked in service industry knows that that would be life changing. Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm just I'm sitting here thinking that you and I are both going through somewhat life transitions right now. But I guarantee you that if Greg Popovich called us right now, we would put aside whatever whatever we thought we wanted to do and go work on his staff or whatever he wanted us to do.
1: I think that's wholly accurate, which I, I might need to pause for a second and ask why that is. <laughs> well, from one big tipper to a notoriously small tipper, uh, talking about Tiger Woods. Um, uh, yeah, Tiger Woods is when it was, uh, it was emotional for me. I was, uh, I was surprised by my own own emotion, and as I've tried to articulate it for myself, uh, I think it it was just seeing someone live the human experience so intensely. I think is what was emotional for me. I I, I don't buy in at all for myself, and I think anyone that buys in fully to this redemption story needs the balls a little bit, uh, and I'm. Been kind of annoyed with the outpouring of love for one that is seemingly redeemed by a golf victory. However, I do think it's mentionable and significant that it happened and it has played out the way it has. Uh, and I, what I'm most interested in, I think, is how we're talking about it. And there were two articles that stood out to me. One was a Guardian article that called it. Uh, I think even the title of the article was something along the lines of like, this wasn't redemption, this was revenge. Hmm. And I can get behind that, uh, especially in light of what the Masters is in that it's, it's hard to find a more glaring example of elitism and racism and money in sports uh, than the Masters. And so for a black man... To have his redemption story uh, seemingly end at at that place, uh, I think that's significant. I, I'm I'm game for that conversation. And then it was uh, Sarah Spain had an article where uh, she essentially said, "Like, sorry, this, no, I I can't give him redemption. Uh, I'm I'm not there yet, and I don't think we should be there yet. And I think we should do our due diligence and keep this story comprehensive." Uh, and that there's a lot in this story that's not all cherries. Um, so I, I, I just I, I find it to be an opportunity for a reckoning for how we talk about sports. Uh, and unsurprisingly, most of the major outlets in journalism were preaching this redemption story.
0: Well, I think it goes back to the very core of what you and I want to talk about when we do these shows, in some ways, which is like just embrace the complexity of it. That it doesn't right. have to mean that you don't enjoy the sport. Like I immensely enjoyed Tiger winning that, but that doesn't mean that I've let him off the hook or that right. I think he's a role model now or, or any of those things. I still think it's a very complex legacy, but you can still sit there and say, all right, knowing what I know, what he went through, it's incredible to see him do this, even though I don't care for him as a person or I don't care for him, how he's carried out some things, you know, it, those two are not mutually exclusive. And in some ways, I think you and I would argue that being informed in that way allows us to enjoy it with in a more guilt-free manner in some ways.
1: Right. Yeah, that guilt-free piece is uh, always underlying uh, what we're talking about, isn't it? Um yeah, it's and always we're trying like to redeem ourselves, right? Yeah, like should we be watching this? Uh Should I have gotten emotional when he won? Those are complex emotions, but yeah, I'm all game for unpacking them and hashing them out. Yeah, um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about fairness this week and Michael Lewis.
0: Oh, Michael Lewis. Well, why don't you introduce us so I can uh, I can go ahead and tell Malcolm to shut up about Michael being the greatest storyteller going on right now. That's the biggest load of crap. Come on now.
1: (laughs) Well, I uh, I have to admit, and you called me out on it, that I purposefully pitched this as an idea for you because I knew it would it would uh, generate some hot takes. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to those hot takes too. But so this is a podcast that is hosted by Michael Lewis. It is funded and produced by Malcolm Gladwell, and uh, it is his first podcast for his new production company, and. It is on fairness and unpacking the concept of fairness as we experience in in our culture today, and it just so happens that the first episode is on sports. Uh, more specifically, it's on the NBA, and what Michael Lewis is uh, kind of digging into is all the complexities that exist in and around fairness in the NBA. In particular, as the stakes seemingly get higher when there is more money, and when there is more money, there is a higher expectation for fairness amongst fans and those that play the game and those that uh, seek to profit from the game in, in whatever way. And uh, most specifically, what he is looking at is the refereeing and how refereeing is under a sort of revolution, not just in the NBA, but in other sports as well, even though his focus is on the NBA. So he goes as far as to interview Adam Silver, uh, some of the more prominent coaches in the NBA, some of the players. Uh, He incorporates his son, who is a basketball player and is seeking to emulate Steph Curry. And uh, he goes to the replay headquarters in New Jersey and watches games with the referees that are behind the television, uh, looking at the replays and adjudicating from uh, a chair. uh, And then kind of seeks to use that platform to zoom out and talk about how our culture goes about defining fairness and experiencing fairness. So within that, he makes a lot of assumptions and I'm sure we'll unpack some of those assumptions that he makes. Um, but I guess uh, does that seem like a pretty good summary of what it is?
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I think uh, it'll be interesting. I'm intrigued to potentially listen to another one of these because I think it, you and I have some problems with this, but I I could see it being a better fit for something like a conversation about the SEC or one of these other regulatory bodies, the EPA, um, in terms of how they adjudicate fairness, I'd be much more interested in. I I guess on some level, you and I know enough to question some of these assumptions that he's taking in here that really, in some sense, undermine our appreciation for what, what this piece is trying to do.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's probably important to point out right here at the start is that his premise is something that we are all in on, right? Uh, That this look at uh, how those in power define what is fair and when those that don't have power say that's not fair, those in power say I don't care uh, and keep making money or keep achieving authority. And so in some ways, I think... uh, this he means for this podcast to be as much about authority as it is about fairness. Uh, and that is, is, I think the rest of the episodes, uh, incorporate the sec. He goes into politics. I think he goes into the art world and, uh, looking at, uh, those that define what is good art. Mm. So I'm sure those podcasts will all be good. And it's probably worth pointing out too, that, uh, the production on this is exceptional, uh, just as other Malcolm Gladwell podcasts, the production, I think, is excellent. He's got all the tricks in here.
0: Oh, it's so good. It's yeah. phenomenal. I mean, like when they start out and hes you're hearing traffic as they walk up to the outside. But I'm, as I'm hearing that, I'm like, damn, this is so good. But it's also really annoying because I know I'm going to be disappointed by the payoff of this. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that piece you're talking about of uh, Malcolm Gladwell calling him the greatest storyteller ever or something like that, some yeah. hyperbolic statement in, in that way. But yeah, so what's uh, what's one of the first things that sticks out to you that's worth talking about?
0: Well, I mean, I, from the very beginning, he frames it in this way that his son um, complains about ref calls in their junior Buddhist basketball league, which I'm just amazed. I would love my kid... To play in a Buddhist basketball league. But anyway. um, (laughs) uh, And so they dig in and he's like... The reason he's doing this, he claims... Or the reason he thinks his son is doing this... Is because of... um, He sees Clay Thompson doing it. Which is... Mm -hmm. A, let's start with the very beginning fact that... That's a huge assumption to make anyway. Um, But B, it does bring up this interesting question... Which is kind of the question that gets him into the whole thing. Which is he argues that there is more complaining in basketball, and particularly NBA basketball now, than there has ever been, which I have to say I is another assumption that I am not sure we can just stand on and agree to.
1: Right. Yeah, and he points out his, all the opportunities he has in front of him to prove that, uh, but it's all anecdotal. Uh, He at no point incorporates any data to say that complaining is at a higher rate than it's ever been. And I think back on like the early 90s Knicks teams that were notorious for lambasting uh, officials and all the other. Rasheed Wallace. Rasheed Wallace, Dennis Rodman. Uh, I mean, there were infinite examples and. Uh, he does kind of unpack that further. And I think this is an interesting part of it, of that one of his main points is that the stars are frustrated more now because they can't get away with as much. And it, it, he doesn't have data to sit, to prove to me that there is more complaining now, but the even the anecdotal part, I am kind of compelled by and convinced by that. I I think that probably is true that the LeBron James is going to get less calls than Michael Jordan and Larry Bird did, uh, and I have seen some data on that. Uh, so there there's part of that that I I do find compelling, and I kind of wish you would have driven that home more as opposed to the complaining part.
0: Um, well, and I guess I just. My biggest thing is that I, you know, with any of these things, my big first question is, even if you have data, and let's assume that you do have data, where is the that correlation or, or or what causal link are you putting in there? And his causal link is very much, he takes it back to this place of privilege, and he cites a study of, which I find it's a very interesting study, about people with fancy cars and how they deal with crosswalks in terms of They break the rules much more often than people that are in less nice cars. And the presumption, again, and this is a tenuous causal link, I would argue, too, is that that comes down to then privilege. And that so in the NBA, these people are mad because their privilege is being taken away and they're not getting the same calls. I think there's a very compelling argument to be made on the other side that the reason that they're complaining more is because they can get away with more Whereas the guy that's the seventh guy off the bench, if he complains, he's going to be in shit creek and potentially losing a contract and all that. So it's a it's a privilege to even be able to complain in some right. ways. And so I would I might argue that that uh, there's a lot of noise in all of these things, and that that his argument uh, I just can't stand behind it, given how many other compelling counterpoints there can be
1: made. Right. Yeah, and I even, to go further on that study, it was a Berkeley study by a Berkeley sociologist, and there may be more legitimacy to that study, but the way they presented it, I was like, this is Perfect fodder for anyone that's not as left as we are to say like oh this is how the left defines the world and so you've got a journalist that lives in Berkeley his son plays in a Buddhist basketball league and he's citing a Berkeley sociologist who did this study by putting his grad students or undergrad students in the bushes at a crosswalk to see who ran stop signs and who didn't I was like Okay this is pretty thin uh on top of the thinness we've already pointed out so i the whole uh entrance into this conversation i think is where the problems were uh it's for me it's not that the conversation shouldn't be happening or that this is an interesting thing to talk about it was just the way in i think that i was like this is a little weak but we'll we'll, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt i guess
0: Well, agree, and I just feel like there's ways to get the data that was missing in some ways. And so, like, you know, the refs now feel like they're getting more hatred from the fans than they did before. Well, okay, Um, where is the study? Can we do a study on what, um, like, literal incidents of fan-ref interaction that have gone poorly? Can we look at numbers of... um, Uh, death threats can we look at the data that suggests that there's an increase in these things because that's where uh, I get frustrated because I don't think that I think it was laziness in some ways that got them to this anecdotal place as opposed to just uncovering that data when I think much of it is
1: available right it makes me think too that this sets up well and I wonder if he'll use this episode for leverage in other episodes to say that what, what is really interesting about the NBA is that it is maybe more egalitarian than other systems mm-hmm. are that incorporate this fairness concept the way in which he's approaching it. So, for instance, what would it look like if LeBron James and Clay Thompson and Steph Curry were the ones that wrote the rule book? And what would it look like if they got to choose who was refing which game and if Mm. they got to pay the salaries of the referees and if they got to determine what the fans got to see and not to see and got to decide what the penalties were. So the case in other settings, so in our economic world where the rules are written by those that are already in power and have the authority, contrasts heavily with the NBA. And so I, I... it, it It was uh this was a platform, and this was a version of the story that I think is maybe can become more meaningful as he moves through the podcast mm-hmm. if he comes back to it
0: um, which does raise um a fascinating question for me i I've never thought about this before, but as you mentioned it, the idea of selecting referees as you would a jury where both teams are involved Mm -hmm. in that could be really fascinating. and could be a really interesting way to determine how that is done. I Mm -hmm. I actually really like that idea.
1: Um, It it could go even further, right? To talk about, like, okay, what is the most fair public arena? And we probably would say sports in in some ways. Uh, And so, like, what is that that we care more about fairness in our sports than we do in things that actually matter much more to our lives. Uh, And we're willing like very, I would imagine the people that are at the golden state games that Michael Lewis probably goes to, and he probably has really good seats are as wealthy as him and as white as him and as powerful as him. And they're willing to stand up and scream and yell and go crazy when they don't like the fairness that was determined by a referee, Uh, yet we don't uh, really have space or or we don't so often find uh, so much collective agreed upon um, uh, opportunities to uh, uh, express how egregious uh, some of these things are that matter so much more than sports.
0: That's really fascinating. What I wonder if it's, you know, at the end of the day, we know the rules for sports in a way that maybe we don't know the rules for some of these other things. And so I'm just thinking about, you know, the way the media is so mixed up today, that there isn't that division in the sports world. And so what's fair becomes much easier to ascertain because everybody can see it. Um, whereas in the in many of these other places, it's all we're getting is secondhand. And when it's secondhand... Um, you don't know who's manipulated, and so it's easy to develop all kinds of cases for why you should ignore certain data and why you should care more about some, and just an interesting, interesting way to think about
1: it. It really is, yeah, yeah. Um, what, just think, they, what Yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, I just want—I want, I guess I want to take that and I want to feed that into one thing that I think is the biggest takeaway for me from this piece, which is just that. If we care about fairness, I think what I took away from this is that if you, there are ways to do it, um, and it but it requires money and time and effort to do it. That the NBA, the, they clearly, from all I understood from this, are much better than they were before. The most meaningful study being one where a guy looked at that white refs were more likely to judge a predominantly black team poorly in the past and that that. Has been now taken out of the game due to some of the stuff that has recently been done, but that's this kind of stuff that's fascinating to me. That really gives me hope, and that because they were willing to invest money and time and energy into this, they were actually able to vastly improve the fairness of the game.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that is a really interesting point, and it makes me think about a couple things. Uh, I agree. I think there is a hopefulness in the story of how the NBA, as it was presented in this podcast, goes about negotiating the changes that have to be made as a result of technology, and that it is possible to make this public, and it is possible to deal with it in a public sphere, and even so, it might lead to more ire amongst true fans But I kind of disagree with the way he presented that ire that he was attributing to the fan bases. Uh, At any rate, I I think there is a little bit of hopefulness that we can change our policies, that we can come to the table with a little bit of patience and understanding, and we can incorporate uh, a better approach to the nuance of uh, the realities that are presented to us once we do have new technology in place which I think is a question that uh, our generation, of course, is just going to keep having to negotiate.
0: I think it's important to also look at this, and I consider this an indictment on myself in some ways, that I have never been a fan of this last two-minute report that the NBA does, but I also want to leave space and make sure we're leaving space that if there's data that suggests that doing that leads to significantly better calls and better outcomes and more fairness in the game, then that's something that I think we have to have to do. And so I, even when I'm uncomfortable with it, and so I think about, you know, if we take this to another space, you know, if I'm uncomfortable with, you know, the SEC needing to have reports on every bit of financial activity that I do, that's going to be really frustrating. But if we can show that on the other end that that, leads to much better outcomes and much fairer outcomes for all, then that's something that I think we all need to learn to just put up with.
1: Right. Yeah, so that raises an interesting question for me, too, and maybe to incorporate some of our shared agrarianism, uh, to go ahead and throw the question out there. And we've talked about it a bunch before, but where the threshold is of where... Uh, Is it possible that we're going to become too obsessed with fairness in sports Mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that we lose some of that gray area? And how much of that gray area do we want and who gets to decide how much of that gray area we operate in? And so I always think about the example when the beloved umpire Jim Joyce uh, made the wrong call at first base on Uh, Galarraga's perfect game. Mm. Do you remember that? I do, yeah. Uh, and how that was kind of a reckoning moment for MLB, of uh, and it was interesting that it hinged on the personality of Jim Joyce, who was this, he's known as this, uh, just really beloved umpire in major league baseball that all the managers like all the players like uh he has some of the best data behind him of the decisions that he's made over the years that we've been collecting data on umpires he's one of the absolute best and he, he made a mistake at this pivotal moment that cost this uh young pitcher a perfect game and how that like kind of unearthed this conversation of like we we want jim joyce out there with we, we may not say it, but it's in our subconscious or it's in our collective experiences that we like a little bit of the gray area. And so I think for you, that always leads to how ultimate Frisbee uh, mm-hmm. is, is not refereed by anyone but the players. Uh, and so at, at what point do we say this is getting out of hand? And if we do say this is getting out of hand, then What we point to as that which is causing it to get out of hand, I think, is where you and I become agrarians. And I think we would say, like, well, that Major League Baseball and NBA and these other entities are becoming too wealthy, uh, that the stakes are getting higher than they should be. uh, And we've kind of lost a little bit of our humanity along the way. And this, this fairness issue seems to take a highlighter to that.
0: Well, it raises interesting questions about technology for me on one hand. I think about things like um, you know, UCL and EPL have both got goal line technology now, which I think we would both argue is hugely important and the way they've done it is so cool and that they know within five seconds whether it's a goal or not. Right. Um, and so there's a way to do this, like as we figure things out. You know, I'm imagining a future with the NBA or any of these things where um, the out of bounds call or um, the uh, whatever that these things are going to become so automated and so technical that they will be automatically done without. Like a, a ref will blow his whistle when something sounds in his ear that lets him know that the ball was out of bounds. That mm-hmm. um, that will I think that will become a thing in the short-term. But there's also, I do think, um, there's always going to be that gray element because it's, you know, I think about the science and philosophy debate that science is never going to completely eliminate philosophy because there will always be questions that science hasn't gotten to answering yet. and In the same way with refs, there will always be questions that need a human interpretation of the rule. In basketball That's very clearly foul calls, that there's always going to need to be a human there to interpret that that you're not gonna be able to do it otherwise and then the question for me then becomes how do you deal with that and so i you know i come back to this the thing that i come back to is giving the players more control which i think is very unsurprising for you and i to want right (laughs) yeah that's, that's
1: exactly me too yeah
0: um but like you know i think that the answer to having players complain less about foul crawls is to have them involve more in the officials and choosing rules and how they're adjudicated to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, If Chris Paul is set a part of deciding how a rule is attributed and how referees are treated, all that stuff as opposed to the league doing it and the players association being opposed to it and and those two being in opposition that make, that creates a whole new dynamic that leads to a vastly different enjoyment and experience of the game.
1: Mm Hmm. That made me think about if if we take that line of thinking uh, to its termination, the idea of uh, technology can't usurp philosophy. It's kind of fun to think about. Like As, as long as we don't know why we are here, the NBA will be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 but if we ever answer that question or... Somehow we're able to uh, be able to explain why we're here. Then uh, our sports might become uh, a whole less, lot less fun to watch.
0: That's that's an amazing perspective.
1: I love it. <laughs> yeah, um, oh yeah, and I I think it's worth pointing out too that like uh, it it's kind of become a a dry, boring conversation to some extent, at least for me. But uh, it, I think it's worth kind of bookending this conversation with it of do we want just robots uh defining what is fair and unfair uh and uh i I don't think we do i don't think anyone does um there there might be i can't say that there's probably some folks out there that want to get rid of umpires but uh i think we would we would lose something
0: that's interesting because i i have to confess that um I do think we'd lose something, but I also think it might be good for sports to do it that way. I don't know. Uh,
1: okay, I'm open.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I have to. I, it's not something I've spent a great deal of time thinking about because it's not. I don't think we'll ever get there. But mm-hmm. um, were we to ever get there, I don't know that I think it would be the worst thing in the world. I mean, you'd still need umpires, I think, even to make the calls that the computer is telling them to make in some ways. So I guess like, you know, I think about, um, you know, I can't, no sport is coming to mind other than golf at the moment where they're like, the the rules are very clear. right? Um, and so like, the, I think there are cases to be made for like, There's always, you know, like, you can have all these guys on the PGA Tour, have their golf balls fitted with technology. That means we know if there's a double hit or we know if there, you know, such and such has happened or whatever. But there's always going to need to be that referee that comes out and says, hey, no, you you did that wrong. We're going to take this away. And I don't know. I guess I just see that. uh, I don't see the big negative in that, in, in the same way that you seem to be positing. So I don't know.
1: Well, I'm 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 trying to open my mind on it a little bit, and one thing that I can immediately come to, and he alludes to this to some extent in the podcast of what this, uh, what what has one thing that has come from being better at uh, instituting the rules in the NBA is that it has seemingly gotten rid of seniority hmm. in, in the idea that Michael Jordan got more calls because he was Michael Jordan or that a veteran gets more calls because they're a veteran. And I I, I want to make an absolutist statement here, but I'm a little hesitant. But I think for the most part, and most times I come across seniority, uh, it I find it Really unfair, and I find it really disturbing, and I find it to be a cause of some of the most pervasive ills in our society uh, and I think like the one example that comes to my mind right now is fraternities, uh, in that where seniority is really valued, I often find really poor versions of humanity, uh, and so I think if if we can continue to cut out seniority from sports, uh, that would be an example of where I would get behind more tech-based solutions.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Although I will say, and here again, this is Brad's being disagreeable today. Yeah, um, bring it. I I have never been completely convinced by the fact this whole um, LeBron and Jordan get more calls than everybody else argument. I think, in some ways, that's hard to argue because there's so many other factors, including, I think James Harden has kind of changed my perspective on this to some degree. That part of being a great basketball player is drawing more fouls. Um, Yeah, and so like these guys, in some ways, like Jordan was such a good player that he put defenders in positions that they had to foul him more often. Than other players did and that's just part of what made him great and so i guess i'd it's hard for me to differentiate the calls he got because he was jordan versus the calls he got because he was an extraordinary basketball player so um,
1: yeah and james harden's a perfect example of that and i think uh i'm trying to think of other rookies that are good at getting fouled i can't come up with any names right now but there are many uh, and especially as uh, kids are playing high level competitive basketball from a really young age now, they many of them are arriving to the league with those skills. But it is uh, even so, still one of those skills that kind of takes uh, time to procure, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and And you see that often in veterans that they are just really good at that finding that quarter step necessary for getting fouled on a move to the basket. So I, I, that's absolutely true.
0: Well, now that we've finished uh, disagreeing with one another, uh, you got <laughs> anything else?
1: Um, I don't think so. I, I think I'm good to kind of wrap it up there and say that, I, I, again, and to reiterate a point, I think it'll be interesting to see if he uses this episode going forward and maybe using the NBA as sort of an example of what a more what a better meritocracy or egalitarian system looks like as compared to some that are more egregious than the NBA.
0: Very good. Well, I'm intrigued. I have to say that my perspective on this has changed a little bit over the course of our conversation. So I have to say that I, uh, when we came in, I was thinking a lot about the limits to transparency and how I might argue that you need to have, you know, uh, that you need to give these refs more leeway and not share as many of their mistakes with as many people. Um, and now that we're done, I'm wondering if I maybe still think that, but also am okay with totally mechanizing it. If we get there before, I think what gives me pause now is we're in this in-between space. Mm -hmm. Like I think, um, we're seeing it with VAR right now in Champions League, that we don't really know when we trust it or not. And I think that's the same we're seeing in the NBA, is that I really like it when we have cut and dry things. So goal line technology is an example. Uh, And so maybe there's an argument to be made that you need to wait till you have the best technology before you start implementing these things as opposed to implementing them and figuring them out on the fly. I think that's where some of the issues are coming in
1: at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, that makes me think about like what it would take to start questioning technology. That that that's an interesting question.
0: Hmm. Well, what have you got going on this coming week, man? What's got you interested?
1: I think I'm going to be paying attention to Jeopardy. Uh, like a whole bunch of other people. Uh, it's been pretty fascinating to read about uh, this guy that is uh, setting records and then breaking his own record and then setting another record and then breaking that record. Uh, so he has the three highest totals. It might be more, I, I haven't read about it in the last couple of days, but uh, the three or four highest totals ever on Jeopardy! And essentially, what I've gathered is that he has uh, fine-tuned all the little nuances necessary uh, for beating the game. And so he is gaming the game, which is not a new thing in Jeopardy, but he's doing it better than anyone's done it before. Uh, But it's also paired with those parts of games and sports that are interesting that uh, the more uh, risk you take uh, that there's a potential higher payoff, and so that he's a professional gambler uh, is just makes the story quite interesting. Uh, but nonetheless, these risks he take he is taking are undergirded by kind of a a, a confidence in his intellect, his experience and skills that he's garnered over many years to be good at trivia and just to be a smart guy. And then on top of that, his kind of professionalism and dedication to playing the game better than everyone else plays it—all uh, of that just makes for a pretty fascinating story. So it's it's fun to watch.
0: It absolutely is. Well, and it's also—I um, think the thing that captivates me more than the money, in some ways, is the like going forty for forty on questions. It's just pretty yeah. incredible. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. But what about you?
0: Um, well, I uh, on a personal note this week, I've got two personal things that I'm doing this week that are sports related that I'm interested in. A, this is the final week of my couch to five k training, and so I'm supposed oh, to be running nice. a five k in the next week, which is uh, which will be interesting. Awesome. Um, but then also, and this is of more interest to me, considering that the five k training is just pain right now. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, is that I? My goal for this week is to start implementing a plan to improve my chess rankings, with the goal of eventually getting to at least a fifteen hundred ranking, and my goal long term is an eighteen hundred ranking, um, uh, which I don't know if I'll ever stand a chance of getting to. But I, uh, I'm going to start putting a little more effort into this, and I'm intrigued to see how it pays off.
1: What's your What's your plan of attack?
0: So it's going to involve a lot of reading and what are known as tactics in the chess world, where you, you're given a situation and you have to pick what are the, you know, one to six moves that you need to do to make the, to get the advantage that you're hoping for. Um, but then also I've got several books by Bobby Fischer and several other folks that I'm I'm intrigued to dig into.
1: I just recently rewatched the Bobby Fischer documentary, and it's it's still amazing.
0: His uh, his whole thing is a- yeah. absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, That's he incredible.
0: does. when just reading about it. I mean, like you can read one paragraph and just I will think about it for a week in terms of him winning. When you know how chess professional chess works and these guys work, like him winning twenty five or whatever it was matches in a row is just unheard of. Right. And incredible. Right. So, cool. But uh, which reminds me, you need to get back on your chess app, Kyle, so we can uh, we can start playing again here.
1: I don't think I've recovered from that last game you beat me. That that was <laughs> devastating. That was I, devastating.
0: I won't uh, I won't name names, but there's one person that we play. We finish about a game a day, um, and I think at this point our record is I won like sixty, and he's won about seven. And yet he keeps coming back for more. And I'm like, thank God, because I would have given up were I in your shoes. At this
1: point. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks, man.
0: All right. Thanks, God, man. For all listening, if you like what you hear, give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. But we'll be back next week, and uh, hopefully we'll have something interesting to share. with you. Thanks, man. Thanks,
1: Steve.